0: Here in Huntington Beach, if you grow up here, you don't want to leave, generally speaking. It's very understandable. One of my sons is away at college. He's in Arizona. He's home for the weekend. He surprised us by driving home for the weekend. I'm not sure if he missed us or the weather, but but he's home, and for that, we're happy. So I said to him, so, you know, you're only here for a day and a half. What do you want to do? He said, I want to see the ocean, and I want to go to In-N-Out, It's the quintessentially Southern California experience, right? So we went to In-N-Out, and then we went over to Sunset Beach, and about every ten yards he'd look out over the ocean and we'd feel the breeze, and he said, man, I miss this, because Arizona's just desolate, Dad. He was on a training exercise the other day and came in the dark apparently, close enough. He didn't actually see it very well, but he heard the rattle, which is the rattlesnake telling you, I'm here, take one more step, and that'll be the end. He had occasion to quote Indiana Jones, why snakes? Why did it have to be snakes? You know, so Arizona's actually trying to kill you, you know? And he misses it. For most of us then, we haven't chosen to leave, and if you've been here for generations, if you're one of the proud locals, maybe you've never had the experience of leaving your hometown and going back. How many of you have done that? You've moved away from your hometown and then you've gone back. It's kind of a different deal, isn't it? It's awkward. In some ways everything's changed, and other ways, in my experience, they try to put you right back in the box you were in when they when you left your hometown, my wife is the baby of three. I, when we before we were married, we'd visit her parents in West Texas, and when the siblings would all assemble, when her two older sisters would get together at my in-laws' home, it was amazing to me how this is a you know a grown, responsible woman who's got, depending on, on the time, working full time in college and has either one or two jobs. But the older siblings would kind of conspire, and suddenly everybody's back under the roof, and they're kind of putting her back in the little sister box, not letting her finish sentences, telling her what's going to happen and where they're all going to go. It was just weird, as an only child, to sit back and watch that family dynamic take over. There's a famous American novel that says you can't go home again. If you've ever had that experience, maybe that makes sense to you. Jesus went home in Luke chapter 4. Open your Bibles there with me. Luke chapter 4, please. You wouldn't know it from Luke's brief recounting here, but when we read of Jesus' return to Nazareth, He's been ministering somewhere else for about a year. He's been going week by week into the synagogue and opening up the Hebrew Scriptures and explaining to them with power that made people marvel and say things like, no one has ever taught us like this. He's not like our religious teachers because He teaches with authority. It wasn't just words, though. He was doing things that only God could do, and both the preaching and the miracles testified to him. Luke sums that up really quickly. In Luke chapter 4, verse 14, it says that after his temptation, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went throughout all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. In other words, when he's in Galilee, it's going well. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue, and on the Sabbath day, he stood up to read. Now, there's some implicit cultural things here. First of all, I want you to know that on a Saturday morning, you always knew where to find Jesus. Where was he? He was in the congregation. This isn't his church. This is decidedly the synagogue, but at this time in God's history, these are the people of God gathered to hear the Word of God. And I want you to see that Luke says, as was his custom, as it was the most natural thing in the world. That's not the point of this, of this passage or of the sermon, but if you're truly following Jesus, gathering regularly on a weekly basis with the people of God to hear God's Word, to pray together, to encourage each other, that's simply going to be part of your Christianity. Every survey I read tells me that American church attendance is going down because even committed Christians are going to church less and less. Jesus wouldn't know what to do with that. On Saturday, He went to hear the Scripture, to read the Scripture, and upon invitation to explain the Scripture. It's a Christian custom, in other words. It's part of following Him. It's not really optional, not optional and as casual as we've made it. And You notice he's given the Scripture, and what does he do before he reads it? You see the end of verse 16? He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. In Jesus' time and culture, standing to read the Scripture expressed his respect for it. He would read it standing, and he would sit down, a sign of humility and reverence to the Word, to explain it. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And here Jesus is tracing back some 700 years. He's reading his Bible, the Hebrew Scripture. 700 years earlier, Isaiah had written in Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who were oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Now, look carefully at what Jesus read from Isaiah 61. Is this good news or bad news? The best news they've ever heard. It's been in their scriptures, contained in that synagogue's collection of scriptures, unrolled week after week to read as a community. It formed part of their reading. The explanations were based upon it. Their prayers reflected it. Jesus is telling them old news but good news. And then it gets even better. He began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now that's new. See, they had heard Isaiah read probably all of their lives. Isaiah was a prophet sent by God 700 years earlier to speak of a servant, someone who would serve the Lord in a special way that would do something unique that no other prophet, including Isaiah, had ever done or ever could do for them. This is amazing good news. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and liberty to those who are oppressed to proclaim the year, the season, the moment of God's favor. And very importantly, if you look back in Isaiah, Jesus stopped reading at that precise word because the very next line in Isaiah's writing says, and the day of vengeance of our God. Why did Jesus stop reading where he did? Because Jesus in this appearance is only speaking of God's favor. He is only proclaiming God's grace. There is a time where he will judge the secrets of every human heart and the one who is Savior will then be turned judge to evaluate what people did in response to his person and his preaching. But that is not that day, Jesus said. Today I am here To bring good news to the poor, liberty to captives, give the sight back to people who are blind, and set free those who are oppressed. And then he said the most staggering thing that had ever been said in that synagogue or any other, right now, right here, while you sit here, this is happening right now. I am that one. How'd they take it? Look at it. I enjoy the participation. That was pretty enthusiastic. (laughs) And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Is that a good response or a bad response? It's good. They were all amazed. They're amazed at what he's saying. He is speaking of Here's where you have to slow down and pay attention to the details. He is speaking of gracious words. We're only given a summary of His sermon, but He is telling them nothing but God's grace. You see, the content of Jesus' sermon addressed this question, who gets God's grace? That's what He wanted to explain to them from Isaiah 61. He is saying, I am the personal fulfillment. No other prophet is coming. I'm the one they've been speaking of. Man, what a tremendous day to be with the congregation. Not to hear a repeated promise that someday God will actually favor us personally with the rescuer. But to be in the synagogue at Nazareth, the day the Savior arrives and stands up and reads the prophecy, which they were all so familiar with, and say the day of God's judgment will wait, that will come later. This is the day of God's favor. I'm the one who can and will rescue you. The Lord sent me. And their response in the beginning was wonderful. They marveled at the words of grace that came from Jesus' mouth. But then something happened. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? See, that's the hometown factor. That's why when I first came here, for instance, it was hard, I think, for some of you to believe that I was an actual pastor because you remember me as a pinheaded college student. And with good reason. I understand your skepticism. This is much more serious. Their initial response is good. They marvel at what he speaks, of what he says. They marvel at his initial confession and declaration that he is the one that Isaiah spoke of 700 years before any of them were born. And then something started happening in the pew. Someone turned, because this happens in congregations. It happens here every Sunday. People start turning to each other and talking to one another about what they're hearing. Somebody turned to their neighbor and said, hey, isn't this the carpenter's boy? Yeah, it is. I took... Food to his home when his mother was sick. I helped change his diapers. And there's something in the question that isn't merely admiring. I know that they're not really admiring and saying, I can't believe that someone for our hometown is the one. There's some resistance there because all Luke gives us is this simple question, isn't this Joseph's son? But then Jesus reads the crowd, knowing the heart of man, he says something to them that reveals the resistance in their heart. Look at verse 23. He said to them, doubtless you will quote this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. The key is in the proverb, physician, heal yourself. That's not a compliment, see? Physician, heal yourself is an ancient proverb common in Jesus' day that said, really? You think you're so wise? Fix your own life first. Before you tell us that you have any good news for us, why don't you get your own life together? That's what physician, heal yourself means. Why did they say it? It's found in the initial question that first went through the pews. Isn't this Joseph's son? See, it's been some 30 years since Jesus was born, and that was precisely the part of their skepticism. In this small town, Nazareth, ancient Nazareth, probably was not much bigger than the five acres you're sitting on, and everyone knew each other. And if you've ever lived in a small town, you know how quickly gossip spreads. That's why a lot of us have moved out of small towns. You blow it once in a small town, everybody knows it immediately. With or without the internet, it goes around quickly, and there's nowhere else to turn where no, somebody doesn't know about your worst moment. I think these were the whispers in the pew, and I think that's all represented in that simple skeptical question. Isn't this Joseph's son? People were thinking... Hey, it's been a while, but wasn't there something fishy about his birth? Didn't his mom leave town for a while? Wasn't there a time that nobody knew where Joseph was? Weren't they away in Egypt for a while? Didn't he come back here with the two of them and Joseph putting a good face on it about two years later? Hmm. Physician, heal yourself. Jesus, before you ever tell us about God's grace, we think you need to experience it. We think you need to get your own life together. See, this is the most important question that anybody could really ask. Who gets God's grace? And there are two tragic responses that you're going to hear in this crowd. The first answer is this, I don't need it. When it comes to God's grace, a lot of people say, I don't really need it. And the reason is for you to confess your need and you for you to run to grace, you have to put yourself in a humbled position first. Look back at what Isaiah wrote about Jesus. Jesus is the one that God has sent and anointed to give good news to the poor, liberty to captives, sight to the blind, and set at liberty those who are oppressed. Does anybody really want to identify themselves as someone who is poor, captive, blind, and oppressed? Nobody wants to say, spiritually speaking, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm spiritually poor. When it comes to spiritual sight, I'm not sure what to believe. I don't know what's true. Here's one way to know if you're spiritually blind or have spiritually clear vision. If you can't see past the day of your own death, you're spiritually blind. Because what Jesus came to tell us, the good news He came to give us is that He was going to die on the cross and rise from the grave to take our sins on the cross with Him and give us instead eternal life. To give you the absolute certainty that when you die, your life does not end there with judgment. It continues in the presence of God forever. That's eternal life. Jesus explained it to a man who once trusted in himself this way. God so loved the world that he saved, he sent, he gave his one and only Son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have instead, do you know the rest of it? Everlasting life. That's spiritual sight. Where do do almost all the people in the world come down on that question? What happens to you one moment after death? Almost everyone in the world will say something like, I'm doing my best and I hope it goes well. I'm doing what I can. I'm doing the right thing for the right reasons. I'm not sure. I hope it all works out. Jesus came. The Savior came to give you certainty of sight to see past your death to eternal life to rescue you from that poverty of not knowing, to rescue you from the captivity of figuring it out on your own and staggering through life on the biggest questions, not entirely being sure what you believe and what will happen to you. Why do most people resist? Why did Nazareth resist? They didn't want to hear of God's grace on Jesus' terms, at least not from Him, because their conviction was that they didn't need it. They didn't want the message because they They found fault with the messenger, and the reason is to admit and call out for rescue. You have to be convinced yourself that you cannot save yourself, and that's hard. Nobody wants to be rescued until they're absolutely convinced there's no other choice. I saw this in kind of a comical way when I was a college student here. This is one of those reasons that made older members skeptical of my leadership when I first came, these kinds of stories. When I was a college student, I went to the beach with a few friends, and we went for a swim. And the kid who grew up in the desert of Mexico and doesn't know much about the water got caught in a riptide, and out I went. But I had a few friends who surfed who had told me enough, if you're being carried out, don't fight it, swim sideways. Get out of it. It's strong, but it's probably narrow. Get out of it and then swim back. So I did. And I'm a terrible swimmer. Okay? I resemble an anchor who means, uh, who means well when I swim. <laughs> so I'm struggling along, and I was just about, I don't know, 20 yards from shore when suddenly one of those little rescue devices, orange in color that lifeguards carry, landed right in front of me. And I looked up, and sure enough, here's a Huntington Beach lifeguard, clearly with the soundtrack of Baywatch playing through his… through his head, running toward me. And I'm still swimming. And I looked up, and I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm rescuing you. And I said, no, you're not. And I swam about six more strokes and stood up. I didn't thank him. I didn't look at him again. I stomped onto the beach angrily because my friends were in real danger of drowning. They were laughing so hard (laughs) that I needed a rescuer. You know what kept me from accepting the rescue? I didn't really think that I needed it this one time I was right, but it was my pride. Nobody wants to call out for help. On the biggest questions of life, no one wants to say, I have no idea. If I'm very honest, I'm lost on this one. I'm walled in by my own ignorance. I'm blinded to the biggest things because I can't see what happens next. I'm poor because I don't have resources, I don't have options, I don't know how to figure this out. This is why Jesus is in the synagogue at Nazareth, telling them of grace. This is why they're resisting it, and it got much worse, actually. He said in verse 24, he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. They're rejecting him because of where he grew up, what they think they know about him, because of what they think is sin in his own family's life. But he's going to correct them. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. That is an old prophet that lived some 800 years before any of them did. There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. What Jesus is doing here is reminding them of one of the lowest points in their nation's history. They had been so wicked for so long that God decreed a drought that consumed them for three and a half years. And in that time, they had a great prophet who spoke to them faithfully the word of God, but no one received it. And that was true for so long that Jesus said, Elijah was sent to none of them, in other words, to no one in Israel, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. You understand the point in the middle of all those unfamiliar words? Jesus is saying, I'll remind you of a time in our history when we were at our spiritual low point. And God had judged us, and families were starving because there was a terrible drought. And the only person who was rescued personally by God from that drought was a widow woman who lived outside our borders, a foreigner who had no claim to God's promises. God sent the prophet to her. Not only that, he gives them another example. There were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. Same time period, they were contemporaries. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the the what? The Syrians were controversial then and now. Naaman was a military officer in ancient Syria, a millennial adversary of Israel. And Jesus was saying, in the days of that prophet, we had a lot of lepers inside our borders, and the only one the prophet healed was a Syrian general. You know what made the difference? Both the widow and the soldier knew they needed rescuing. They knew they were out of options. And God found humble hearts and rescued them wherever He found them. You see, the second tragic answer to the question of who gets grace is people who hear the gospel say to the question, who gets God's grace, they say they don't deserve it. We don't need it, Jesus, not from you. Not on those terms. We think you're wrong. And these other people outside of the synagogue, outside of our borders, they certainly don't deserve it. That is a category that the followers of Jesus struggle with even now. One of the proud responses to grace is to put certain groups of people in certain categories and consider them beyond grace, beyond hope, beyond redemption. That's why Jesus said, pray for everybody, including and beginning with your enemies. No one is outside of God's grace. Who gets God's grace? Here's the good news of the gospel. Anyone humble enough to know that they need it. You see, the struggle that God has with my heart and yours is whether I'll be proud or humble. Let me be very personal and very direct, and I'll be done. Some of you have heard the good news of Jesus Christ, that God loved you enough to send His Son to live in your place and die on the cross for your sins because He had none of His own and to take his life back in resurrection as only God could so that you could be benefited and blessed with eternal life. You've heard that preached and explained countless times in countless ways, but when it comes to the point of actually saying, yes, I'm crossing the line, I'm going to stop putting it off. I'm going to stop giving all kinds of reasons for not trusting him personally and saying to Jesus, I'm a sinner, you're a Savior, please save me. You've heard the gospel and you've had that response to postpone your decision for weeks or maybe for years. Every time you hear the gospel and don't run to Jesus for mercy, what you're saying in that moment at least is, I don't need it. I hear your gracious words, I hear your offer of forgiveness, I hear your diagnosis of my poverty, my blindness, my captivity, my guilt, and I just don't think it's that bad. Not yet. Maybe I agree, but I'm not humbling myself, I'm not bowing the knee right now. My heartfelt personal invitation if we were sitting in in two chairs facing each other, I would tell you the same as I do from this pulpit surrender your pride and run to Jesus. He's the only one who kept all these prophecies. No other Savior is coming. The prophet spoke in writing for centuries before his life of only him. He fulfilled every promise and fulfilled every prophecy that God ever made, and no one else is coming. He is the only one who could ever possibly save you. But if you continue to say, not me, not now, not yet, you'll miss this grace, and God will turn to others. And wherever He finds humble hearts, wherever people admit that they need rescue, He is a certain Savior. So my invitation to you, if you have any trace of doubt about your spiritual sight, about your spiritual knowledge, that you would turn to Jesus right now. Can we pray together, please? Could I ask you to bow your heads and think about it? If you're not certain of your relationship with Jesus, if you're not certain that if your life is taken from you suddenly, you would be safe and saved and whole and with Him? Turn to Jesus right now. If God is at work, both God and your conscience tells you that you're far from Him and you need Him, that God is holy and perfectly just and righteous, and you're not. Neither am I. But that's why God sent the Savior. Would you turn to Him right now and say, Lord, I I get it. I don't understand it all. I still have questions. But I understand this much. I'm a sinner. You're a Savior. Please save me. If you do that... In your own words, you don't need magic words. There is no ritual. Just call out to God personally and turn yourself in. Say, "God, I can't save myself. Even now, I'm not, I'm not rich spiritually. I don't know everything. I don't understand it all. But I know that much. I've sinned, and you save. Please save me. I'm sorry for my sins. Save me, and He will. He does everywhere." He saves people even who had reason to hate Israel and fight against them if they would humble themselves and do what God said. If you do that, I invite you to pray right now. And then, before you leave, just fill out that card in the bulletin. Let us know that you've done that. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. would love to help you learn the first steps of following Jesus. And Christians in our day with all this anger and frustration that has built up inside Christian churches and Christian families, I think the challenge for us in this passage is not that we'll miss the Savior, but that we'll miss the fact that God will save people who were far from Him, who we've given up on, who have wounded us, hurt us, betrayed us, or been so absolutely different from us, that we've given up, they would say, not with our words, but with our silence, with our contempt. Those people are beyond redemption. The widow in Sidon wasn't. The Syrian general wasn't. God had a wider grace, a greater love that extended all across the world, and they were just some of the first proofs that God will save anyone, anywhere, no matter what they've done, if only they will be humble enough to trust Him as Savior. Maybe there's someone you have stopped talking to, someone who you have a cold, quiet resentment for, a whole group of people that you've put in your own mind outside of God's grace and love, while other people turn to Jesus as Savior. Why don't you turn to Him as Savior and say, forgive me, Lord, for loving them less than you do. Forgive me for putting them in a different category than you have them. Lord, would you please move in this congregation? I know there's families here who are torn by differences, and those differences are deep and real and moral. Help those who are truly your children to look on all of those people with grace and ask God in the name of Jesus that grace and love will be shown to them. And if there's anyone here, and I believe probably, Lord, in a crowd this size in two services There's many people here who aren't entirely sure of their relationship with you. Would you give them the humility right now to turn to you in prayer and say, God, I give up. I'm turning myself in. I've sinned. I'm far from you. I get it. I admit it. I confess it. Please forgive me. Save me, Jesus. And let us rejoice with them, Lord, as you will rejoice in heaven. that people have humbled themselves and come home to the Savior.